do I want to use fear in a way that's productive, that motivates me in the right direction? Or do I want to let fear use me, just like in the idea of, of tyranny? Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley. Joining me are Elon Martin and Adam Daniels, as usual. Today, we have back with us Alan Francis. We had Alan on last year to talk about his book, Secrets of the Fourth Way, which came out in, what year did that come out? 2016. So five years, five years ago now. That's, um, and he also, Alan also spoke with us about some projects he had going on and that he was launching. And one of those is the website istfw.com, International School of the Fourth Way. So we'll include links in the show description and a link to his book and the website. And to start out with, Alan, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. I want to ask you just to give us an update on the International School of the Fourth Way and how things have progressed since we uh, last spoke with you. I know um, in the year in the year and a bit since we've spoken, there have still been lockdowns, various travel restrictions. I know you were starting to get, uh, trying to get started up a, a, a physical location in Spain. Um, can you just tell us how things have been going or if you've run into any obstacles? Sure. Good to see you again. Uh, there have been quite a few things that, that have uh, uh, predictably, you might say, uh, uh, gotten in the way of uh, our uh, scheduled uh, opening in in uh, Spain. Uh, we have there are two people there, uh, uh, Lucy and Jane, uh, who are who are working towards trying to get a pied de terre. You know, uh, first of all, a kind of a, just a house that people can come and and uh, and visit us, and we can do some workshops uh, out of. And then uh, the uh, later the purchase of a larger property uh, that we can uh, have people uh, live on and uh, visit and uh, and uh, have a community really, and all those things uh, are uh, as usual more difficult than you first. Uh, uh, believe it should be or could be, but there are, yeah. there are many complications in uh, dealing with the bureaucracy in Spain. Uh, and uh, both of these, uh, the two of them, uh, Lucy and Jane, have gotten uh, their uh, residencia already, which is really good. Uh, that took a little bit. I, I have to also do that myself. Uh, but I'm in the process now of finishing uh, up uh, doing some renovations on my house here in the Sonoran Desert in order that I could then sell it. And that would be part of what would go towards uh, my, I, I need a certain money in the bank uh, mm -hmm. uh, to get the residency and so on. Yeah. So uh, in the meantime, uh, things are going fine, especially with the uh, uh, website, ISTFW, we're gaining people who are interested in the project. Uh, we really need some major donors. I used to be a, a strategic planner for nonprofits uh, here in America and helped set up and all that. 
And of course, we are not a nonprofit. I'm not sure whether we're going to go towards that or not. But uh, in any case, uh, and in Gurdjieff's case as well, when he was at the Pure or trying to set up the Pure, he needed help uh, from people who had uh, some money. And uh, he was fortunate to be able to get that help. And we're hoping that we will also uh, get that. In any case, we're determined to start the center no matter what. so we're hoping uh, next year uh, will be uh, when we officially opened in 2022. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we are dealing with everything everyone else is dealing with. Uh, the COVID uh, uh, problem, uh, which is we will be talking about, of course, is twofold. One is one is the actual. Uh, a virus and it's many many sort of like uh you know a hindu god you know with many arms to it <laughs> uh, and uh and uh, also the political uh ramifications and social ramifications of all that uh these are all uh, certainly impacting as it did with mr gajif uh, uh in his time impacting mm-hmm. what we're trying to do and unfortunately, Mr. Grzyf, uh was in the middle of uh, tremendous uh, difficulties, uh, in, including the wars and the uh, uh, 1930s with the Depression. And mm-hmm. uh, also in the World War I, there was the extraordinary influenza uh, epidemic, which really killed a lot of people. <laughs> and... Uh, so uh, Spanish flu, they called it. So all those things that that impacted him to more or less, I think, is is uh, also occurring now. And we are trying to look towards what are the best uh, avenues of approach uh, in the fit midst of what we call in the Gershif work, Sudianensius. And I certainly think this is not at its peak yet. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, yeah. sort of the current, current situation. Right. For for our listeners who aren't familiar with Gurdjieff, because I know there are some still, um, I, I'll just recommend that our viewers and listeners check out our old episodes. We've got a couple on just Gurdjieff himself, and we've got uh, we've got another interview with Alan. So check those out. Other if so, if you're not familiar, we're just going to be kind of launching launching you off the deep end into into this sort of thing. So um, you mentioned a few interesting things there, Alan. Um, first, I, I want to I want to reiterate the the history that you gave about Gurdjieff, um, because for those who have forgotten or who who aren't uh, who aren't sure of what was going on, he was he was operating in the the Russian Empire in the nineteen teens, and was there for several years, and then. We all well. We should all know what happened around 1917, the Russian Revolution. So through the the period and the Civil War. So through the period of the Revolution and the Civil Civil War, Gurdjieff got his people, and basically trekked them all the way down to the Caucasus. You know, Georgia, um, Georgia, Armenia, um, Turkey. That in those areas, and it was a, a constant. Like you read some of the accounts, like Thomas de Hartman's "Our Life with Mr. Gurdjieff." You read some of the accounts, and it was pretty harrowing. The kind of stuff that they went through. Um, it, 
you've heard stories like this before of you meet you meet a gang on the street and you're not sure if they were whites or reds and if if you were on the wrong side then you might not live so it was a, a constant um a constant test of one's survival skills for one and um just a a horrific time to live through just you know tons of of death and destruction and of course that was that that was just one of the one of the experiences you mentioned the great depression in the 30s um 1930 and then world war ii gurdjieff was in in paris yeah he eventually found him made his made his way to to france and paris and settled there and so then in the mid 40s you have the occupation by nazi germany so again he he's he's dealing with totalitarians and there's again some some great stories of of um well, some humorous stories, which are are a nice, um, a nice contrast to the to the grimness. But there are some funny stories of Gurdjieff dealing with the, you know, the Nazi occupiers. And uh, one on one of our shows, I can't remember if, if it was if it was the one we did with you, Alan Corey had mentioned uh, the story of Gurdjieff hiding money in his, in, hiding hiding uh, different currencies in his mattress and making a joke about it when when he got caught. Right, so. <laughs> So there, there's, so Gurdjieff lived through all these things. And I think reading his story and reading the stories of the people around him of what they went through and how they dealt with it, I think that can, it, it provides, it not only provides perspective for the current day and, um, but also an example of, of what you can do, how you can approach a situation like that. Because Gurdjieff was always, he was resourceful and he survived, you know, he got through all of this successfully. And that come, came down to just his, his personal qualities, but also his way of dealing with people and, and his awareness of the situation. So I guess with that said, um, how do you see the personal work, I guess you could call it, um, work in self-development, you know, work on the self, how do you see that whole situ that whole, um, that whole phenomenon and which you deal with other Gurdjieff groups deal with self-development, um, self-knowledge. How do you see that relating specifically to a situation, um, a situation like this that might require us to get into what the situation itself is, but, uh, just whatever you want to say, I want to hear it. You know, for us uh, in the Gurdjieff work, uh, what's most important, of course, is not so much the words that we speak, but that we try to be here present in this moment. And it's quite amazing how difficult that is to to pay attention to oneself, where your body is in this room speaking to you. And really, that's fundamental. That's the, perhaps the most fundamental thing. And how Mr. Gurdjieff's ideas uh, interact with that attempt to be here, to be awake in this moment. And he gives three lines of work, which are the line. Uh, of working on myself. And this is the first thing. And he even speaks about the need to be a conscious egoist. That is really to focus on oneself. Uh, and then the second line is working with other people. And 
uh, sangha, I think it would be in Buddhism when something like that is. It's 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 this it's this importance of of being connected with other people in a way that uh, produces a certain effect on yourself and on them. And then thirdly, uh, working for the aim of the work. Why is the work here? Why did Mr. Gurdjieff spend all this time and energy when he could have made himself a rich man a hundred times over and, and spend and set a sacrifice his life for this purpose? And that, that is a little more complicated, but in his book, uh, Bezable's Tales to His Grandson, he makes it clear that this purpose is involved with what we're talking about. That is finding some way to get humanity out of its downward trend, trying to somehow stop this entropy that we're all involved with. And we see in the last hundred years before, uh, millions and millions of people murdered in war and, and uh uh, in uh, starvation, China and Russia and, and many, many places. And what's that about? What, why are we doing that? Why can't we stop this? And of course, Gurdjieff points to the individual. He points back to ourselves. Who am I? How am I? If I'm asleep, if, if I'm an automaton, basically, of course, I can be led around at any moment. And people gave a, a tremendously powerful demonstration of that uh, under Adolf Hitler or uh, under Mussolini or under Stalin uh, and many others uh, all over the world. It's not in one place. And so then we are these kind of, uh, kind of sheep that willingly go to the slaughter or willingly slaughter other people. And so Gurdjieff is saying that it has to start with the individual. All sort of big programs, you know, these big kind of uh, idealistic concepts about how you're going to change humanity don't work. And in fact, they often turn to the opposite. Uh, and that's, he talks about in, in what's called the law of octaves. And that, by the way, is so interesting because uh, the original Mendeleev, before Mendeleev, the original uh, chemical table was called the law of octaves because it was based on this progression, same progression. So in all things, from chemicals to uh, humans to cosmic laws, there are these, there are these uh, processes that are going to occur. And for us, we need to understand them if we're going to change anything. Otherwise, if we, if we start to change anything without knowledge of these laws, then, then we're going to end up, as he said, very often going in the opposite direction that we first proposed. And you can see that all over uh, uh, in, before at the beginning of Hitler's time, as you probably know, there was a big movement in Germany back to nature. And just very big, you know, all the use. And it, and, and it sort of reminded me, I was a hippie, of course, you know, in the, in the 60s. And it reminded me of the hippie era, you know, we were all into back to nature. I was going up to, 
you know, backpacking in Begzer and, and, you know, and, uh, you know, meeting all kinds of people all the time and uh, interchanging ideas and things like that. And, and I think it was sort of like that in Germany. Now, how did that turn into the Hitler Youth? How did that turn into one of one of the worst tyrannies the world has ever seen? That's that's a, a question we need to have when we go about trying to change things on a large scale and not beginning with ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, Alan, one of the things that I've noticed uh, for myself in doing any kind of um, self-examination for instance, is my reactions to uh, world events and developments and noticing the fear that I might experience in my solar plexus or my chest uh, getting tight. And there is a, um, there are efforts made to be productive, to, to just be constructive and and not to allow uh, things to become blockages, not to allow a uh, any kind of hopelessness or uh, any any fears to take hold in such a way that I would be incapacitated, or even if I am experiencing these things, that I'm aware of myself in the moment to say. This is what I'm experiencing. However, I'm still going to make, I'm still going to try and make some efforts to do these tasks that I have set forth for myself. And so I, uh, all by way of saying that there is a, a, a certain, um, a certain level of fear that that's, uh, I think like anxiety, anxiety becoming, getting induced in many people right now. Um, and something you've written is that there is a, you know, it can go both ways. It can be used constructively or it can be, uh, it can be like a door shut. Um, and I I just wonder if you can speak a little bit to experiencing fear and, or anxiety and, and what a good approach, uh, a constructive approach to these experiences maybe i think it's one of the most important questions uh, uh, certainly for me i don't know if everybody would agree uh, uh, that i have uh, really done some personal research uh, on for many years since childhood really and uh, one of the things i i found uh, perhaps the most important thing is that fear was not designed to shut one down. That couldn't be the purpose of fear. Uh, like we have a purpose uh, in many, many things in our lives, in our functions, there's some purpose to it. What's the purpose of fear? It's totally counterintuitive that, it, that it's, uh, the purpose was to shut down the system in face of danger. That doesn't make any sense whatever. So what I found, and I tested this, I would think very thoroughly uh, in my life in many ways, uh, that fear is literally a doorway that can open to higher 
and more deeper perception, to a deeper awareness, to an awakening, really, on an instinctive level. So there, there's fear on, on, in each of our different centers, in the, each of our different uh, parts of ourselves, and one of them is instinct. And instinctive fear was clearly designed to make you more able to deal with danger, to be able to uh, live better and uh, live longer. So how to get to this, how to get to this other, uh, this other perception when we have fear, because when we have fear, all our associations tend to flow in, in the opposite direction, in the direction of, of, uh, of, of not opening up, not becoming aware, for example, of my surroundings so I can do better. And I use the analogy because I did this quite often of walking down a dark alley at night. So you're walking down a dark alley for whatever reasons. I did it very often just because I was testing this, uh, this uh, fear, what is fear? And you hear a noise and you want to access that, determine, is this danger or is this benign? Is this something like a cat jumping on a garbage can or something like that? Or is this somebody hiding, waiting to rob you, hit you over the head? So in order to do that, what I need is to be very focused and very aware and a sense very centered. Then like a good martial artist, I'm going to be able to take whatever steps I need in order to get away from any kind of danger or simply to settle down and calm down because there is no danger, but it's very practical. You know? And uh, I use the uh, neurohormone adrenaline in order to increase my perceptivity and also, of course, bring my body to a point where if I need to, I can move quickly and efficiently. So fear, and that's, that's one kind of fear, which is very real, uh, picking up a rattlesnake or nearly stepping on one. There are rattlesnakes out in the Sonoran Desert here. Uh, that that is very palpable and very very uh, simple to understand, but there are many fears that are based in imagination, and those fears, as you were talking about, which often lead to anxiety. I fear the future. Well, of course, you could live your whole life like that in fear. What's going to happen? I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to get COVID. I'm going to. Uh, lose my house, it's going to burn down, you know, on and on. And, and we could live simply in that uh, field of associations, of negative associations. And people do. Many people today do. And uh, that, of course, just drains you of energy. It takes your life. So you have to make a determination. Do I want to use fear in a way that's productive? that motivates me in the right direction? Or do I want to let fear use me, just like in the idea of, of tyranny, 
do I want to use it, let it use me and control me? And that's my choice. Once I know this, before I know that, of course, it doesn't seem like there's a choice. I'm locked in. I'm locked into the ordinary definition of fear. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if, <clears throat> well, first I'll preface this by uh, giving a little anecdote. I'm reading a, a book that was written back in the 30s, I think it was in 1930, um, called Psychopathology and Politics. Um, I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but it's kind of, it's kind of a, it's considered a classic in the field of political psychology. And in one of the first chapters, he points out that he talks about case histories of people. And he talks about a judge. And this is about, in my language, I'd put it, I'd phrase it as the, he's showing the importance of self-knowledge, but the lack of self-knowledge. And this is why it's important in politics, you know, the, the subject that he's dealing with. So he's talking about a judge that had come in to psychoanalysis because um, he'd heard of the great things that, that it could do. And he's talking, he gives a couple examples of the, either the, the lawyers that he's working with that are appearing before him or, or clients or just people. And um, so there's this one, this one lawyer that he, he, he realized that this guy rubbed him the wrong way. And so he didn't like him, but he didn't want to let that bias his decisions. But because he didn't want to let that bias his decisions, he was actually sustaining more of his objections than, than normal and actually overcompensating and giving this, um, and, and giving this guy special treatment. And he, so he had no control over his actions. He found himself doing things that were irrational and, and he, he basically wanted to figure out how he could regain his objectivity in regard to this guy. And so of course he, he, the, the author gives this as an example of, well, once, once he, he, he eventually figured out that, that this guy, the, the way that he was behaving and the way that he like said a single word reminded him of this professor that he'd had when he was in law school who had um, spoken a certain way with a certain ironic tone of voice when he'd say the, like the concept of freedom or something. And, and, and he, this guy was trying to gain the, the professor's attention and get him to, to like him, but the professor never reciprocated that or, or never responded to that. He always, always treated him with a distance. So, so he had some, some built up resentment towards this law professor and, and this guy reminded him him of this professor, and he didn't know it. And so he was he was treating him in strange ways and having these these irrational reactions to this guy. And once he realized, oh, you know what? Once he realized this was going on, then he was able to just to- completely dissociate that from his everyday dealings. And this reminds me of several times where Gurdjieff talks about. He gives similar examples. I think in I think it's in Beelzebub's Tales where he gives the example of the guy looking in the mirror. And uh, you know, getting ready for for work in the morning, and then everything happens wrong, and he he gets all 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 grumpy, and he snaps at his his servant or his wife, and basically, here's this professional, important person who has zero control over his own emotions, and is just is buffeted one way or the other by them, and so I think this is this is what the, the fear is an example of this of just being just being pushed around. By your these basic emotions that you don't that you don't underst- don't even understand are doing this. Um, so the way I see the the situation with fear is that there's a there's an immediate there's a stimulus there's a fearful stimulus, and as you said, it could be benign or it could be actually dangerous or it might be a bit of both depending on the situation. 
But the for a person without self-knowledge who's just going with the flow like this judge, at least the, the judge could realize something was going on. He just didn't know what it was. But a lot of people just, it's, it's as if when that impulse comes, that impulse of, of fear, of uncertainty, of, of danger, we, we have this innate trust in our body's response, right? Fear, oh, um, or that might not be entirely accurate, but fear, okay, I'm just going to listen to this and do what comes naturally, and it's just turn away and, and run. And not to open yourself up to it, right? That's the, that's the constricted response. And instead of, you know, stopping, opening your eyes and, and kind of, or you might even flinch first until you can get a, get a, get a handle on what the situation is, take in the information. But the, but really this comes down to what you were saying earlier, that the, the main problem or the main focus, that first focus is actually on the self. It's not on other people. It's not on changing other people or getting other people to come around to your way, to, to your way of doing things. It's, well, I really have to start with myself. And I think that that first realization is I don't know myself very well. And, and I am, I am influenced to a large degree by things that I don't understand. And that causes me to do things that I might look back and and say are irrational. Is um, well, do you have any comments on on that or any expansion on on uh, those ideas? Well, I think this is uh, the idea that uh, we don't know ourselves is is also a fundamental idea in the Gurdjieff work, and of course in Greek philosophy with Socrates and, and, and so on. And uh, so we take the idea of observation, in particular of self-observation, very seriously. And this judge, of course, was, first of all, observing what was happening outside himself. That is, he was giving, uh, uh, he was letting this person have his way, but then he, he turned that and he said, but why am I doing it? So the arrow went back to himself, which is exactly right. You know, this is, this, is, this is what we need to do. And in all our manifestations, when we see something like that, we need to turn our attention back to us. Why? Why am I doing this? And the problem, of course, with us is that we're so intellectual, you know, that it's, we're all in the head, you might say. And so this question becomes a kind of uh, simply uh, self-reflective exercises and, and rather than a real deep inquiry into, into who I am and what kind of person I wish to be, as well as what kind of person I don't wish to be, which is like the situation of the addict. The addict is told, don't be an addict, <laughs> you know, but he's not told. But what can you be? You know, what what is the positive side of, of, of getting out of this prison you're in? But the addict is not the only person in a prison. In fact, the vast majority of, of, of us are, are, are in prison and uh, we don't see it. But then something happens if we're fortunate, like with this judge, where all of a sudden uh, he sees he's doing things that don't make sense to him. And he wonders why. And this, by the way, is, is something that Gurdjieff talks about 
in in his book Belzebub, uh, at the beginning of the society of Akaldan, which was a great uh, society that that investigated not only the inner workings of human psychology but also what was happening in the world around at the time, and that according to the book, according to Gajip, was uh, before the Great Flood. Actually, there's been a couple floods if you want to go back to uh, Gilgamesh. But uh, before that Great Flood, where, they, where there was something going on outside them, they, they could see that. They knew something was, was going to happen, and, and yet they didn't know what. And uh, so part of that inquiry was outward, which was going to different places and looking at the geological situation in these areas, what was happening. Was there more, uh, more geological activity in different areas and what were they? And somehow, apparently, they were able to calculate that Atlantis was going to sink under the sea. Uh, whether you believe this is a, a myth or a legend or actual historic fact is not so important as, as the idea that he's trying to get across, which is what you exemplified with the judge. And then seeing all this and trying to work this out, they came back also to themselves. You know, how, how am I? And it's very interesting because in our work, there is this idea that we ourselves, especially when we're involved with larger groups of people, have an influence on the planet, on organic life on Earth, and even on geological and, and, and meteorological changes, which, of course, anybody that's studied shamanism would say, of course, you know, that's what a shaman, exactly what a shaman was about. He was about uh, psychologically helping his tribe and also at the same time gathering together that they produce some kind of influence that would then help stabilize uh, the situation. And the Hopis, uh, who I think were one of the most interesting of, of the American Indians and Mesoamerican uh, said that we've gone through this three or four times already, and we're about to do it again. And uh, so what are people going to do? They're going to hide, they're going to deny, or they're going to accept that that uh, we may be in for some very difficult times, as you mentioned, Gajif did, and uh, figure out what they want to do and what their personal responsibility is towards that. So, Alan, one thing that uh, one concept that that's presented in your book is uh, the Hasnamus, this idea that there are individuals who are masquerading as human beings, and like you said earlier, I mean, there's there's very little we can do to affect positive change on a macro level, but we can at, at the very least work on ourselves to the best of our ability uh, and with others in our proximity. Um, at the same time, it, it seems in observing uh, social uh, developments and, and movements and ideological uh, um, politics that there is this growing or festering 
um, enlargement of, of the hasnamas, of a, a kind of mindless, emotionally plagued um, uh, impetus among a lot of people. Yes. And I, I guess one question I would have is, uh, it, has, it, has it always been there and now it's been activated? Or is it just that it becomes exacerbated in, in certain times and periods and like we're seeing right now? So really any insights you have into this emotional plague uh, that we seem to be uh, witnessing is helpful, I think. Yeah, that's a term I've always liked from Wilhelm Reich, uh, emotional plague. I think it's, it's uh, quite, uh, quite right that, that it is a plague, but on an emotional level, rather than on a physiological level. And that would run through uh, the what Gajif would call prana or hamblatswan, a certain kind of energy that passes from one person to another. So not just, you know, through breathing and things like that do we pass things, but we pass things through our emanations. And it brings uh, to mind uh, one of the... Uh, stories of Mr. Gershif, which is that back around uh, 600 BC, 500 BC, uh, uh, at the time of Zoroaster in Persia, and it seems that he speaks about Ashiata Shimash, uh, which uh, uh, is a person in his book, uh, and uh, that that person is probably Zoroaster. And Zoroaster came about at the same time as this tremendously uh, fascinating uh, moment in Babylon when uh, the king decided that he wanted to bring all these wise people together. And this is apparently very historic. And uh, so he took uh, the Jewish uh, prophets like Isaiah and others into Babylon, but also uh, Pythagoras was there and, and many, many, many other people. And so at that time, uh, Zoroaster uh, began uh, working with people in Persia. And uh, his concept was that he, he took two people and these people were already some kind of initiates and something but he then began informing their reason uh, to bring them up to a higher level. And once these two people were brought up to this higher level, they went out as kind of like apostles and, and, and tried to then uh, help two other people rise up to this level and so on. And so, you know, the, the story about rice, you know, where the guys, guy says, well, just pay me in a grain of rice and double it, you know. And of course, that was the kind of uh, effect it had. Uh, also, a kind of uh, the opposite of an emotional plague. You know, it was a, an emotional uh, catharsis, an emotional awakening. Uh, and so, throughout Persia, there spread this this teaching. And of course, it's based on the same ideas as we find in Christianity, where where Jesus says repeatedly, "Awake." 
That's his main command that he gives to people. Awake, don't sleep. And he means psychological awakening, really being here. And so Zoroaster was working on this premise. And uh, the whole area, and Persia was quite big at that time, Persian Empire, uh, under Cyrus, of course, and, and began to spread this idea and this and this uh, new uh, awakening. And so many people apparently got on board with this and at some level or another were transformed by this teaching that even people in positions of authority, like mayor, we call mayors or governors or whatever, when they saw that they were not equipped, <laughs> this would be very funny in our day, <laughs> they were not equipped to govern. <laughs> Never. <You know? laughs> and and they actually gave up their position to a wiser person hmm. and, and, and said, you, please take my place <laughs> because I don't wow. know what I'm doing, but I know you do. Now, of course, if you find a politician like that, tell me, I'd be glad to vote for him. <laughs> In any case, they, they first was this inner psychological transformation that led to this sociological phenomena, you mm. know, and just Gaji speaks about it, just the fantastic. And, and if you read about Zoroaster and you read about that time, there was this spread of, of this teaching and there was relative peace in that area, which there pretty much had been for some 200 years. Now, this, this goes to your question. All of a sudden, this guy comes up uh, and uh, I think uh, Gajif, uh, his name, Gajif Lentrohamsonen, which is kind of a combination of, of, of names, but he, uh, he started saying, well, you know what? It's, it's not right that you have to make any effort. You have fully the right to be free and, and, and you can awaken just by letting go of everything and not, not being responsible. Why should you have to do this? You're not slaves. And so he helped destroy the underpinnings of Zoroaster's teaching because Zoroaster was based on responsibility. And, and there's that psychologist that, that goes around today that talks a lot about responsibility. He's an interesting guy. Uh, he's on YouTube and, and stuff. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. That's the guy, yeah. Yeah. So I don't agree with everything he says, but he's pretty pretty reasonable. Anyway, so this guy, Lynchrahampson, and you know, which they would say uh, now, uh, or at least we would say when I was younger, he was a mama's boy. That is, he never grew up, you know, never became a man. And so he wanted everybody else to also agree with, with his attitudes, with his uh, predilections. And so that began destroying it because, of course, it's like smoking opium. You know, mm -hmm. if you smoke opium, well, who in the hell cares? You know, I'm free. <laughs> you know, everything's cool. Uh, and uh, so then Alexander came. I think it was 323 two, three BC, if I remember right, something like that. 
and he decided he was going to take over the world. And, and he, of course, was a, a, a narcissist egoist to the extreme degree uh, and had no idea what was going on in the Persian Empire in the sense, uh, sense of this great teaching that still existed there. And so he came over and decided to destroy uh, the culture, the Persians, and then, of course, went into Egypt and other places and calling himself God, basically. Uh, so those two combinations, which is very interesting, one on a psychological level, one on a large sociological level, uh, where it was able to destroy much of the teachings. And, of course, the then the Zoroastrians who were left, the part called the Parsis, uh, most of them moved to India and still many of them still live in India. Uh, and they're called fire worshippers. Uh, so here you have an example of, of a Hasmamas not only destroying his own possibilities, his own soul, not just his mind, but his soul. Uh, he was out to destroy others. And that's a quality of a Hasnamas. He's not content with destroying his own life. So why is it today? Well, uh, it seems as if, and, and if you have evidence to the contrary, please tell me, it seems as if humanity psychologically is deteriorating and has been deteriorating for quite a while. And uh, technologically, wow, amazing, amazing things. But as I said in that technological conference we had in Moscow, what does it matter if you develop technology that is not in support of real human development? Mm -hmm. If you don't understand the aim of humanity, why I'm here, why humanity is here, what its purpose is, what its function, everything on earth has a function. What is humanity's function? Just to, just to have a good time? What is it? And if one doesn't understand that, then how can technology be guided towards supporting that real function? So yes, technology, amazing stuff, you know, I'll, and I'll use it. Uh, we're going to use biofeedback, for example, uh, in Spain, because my friend's a great biofeedback scientist. And, and I think it's quite interesting and it, it will help. Uh, but how to know what will help and what? is going to be a curse. So yeah, and, it, and well, also I'll, I'll, I'll interrupt real quick. It's just so funny, Alan, because uh, one question I had in my mind before we started the interview is, I wonder what Alan thinks of biofeedback, if that's in line with uh, Gurdjieff's work at all. Anyway, sorry yeah. to interrupt. I just mm -hmm. thought it was funny that you answered the question without a direct. Yeah, we've done some biofeedback. Um, that's great it's stuff. Yeah, really, really cool. Um, oh, now what? What was I going to say? Um, well, I wanted to. I wanted to go in a certain direction. What was the? We're talking about. Ah, I forgot where I was. What I was going to say next, but that's okay because I wanted to. I wanted to get to something based on, on what you, what you were just saying. So we were talking about Hasnamus individuals, and uh, and you mentioned that the the destruction. The, the, they're not content with self destruction. They 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 need more than that, so they destroy others. And you mentioned the the deterioration of of humanity and our 
our our being, our essence, just who, who we are, our psychology. And so this brings me to a concept you men mentioned earlier, soliunensius. I've got uh, just, I'm going to read an excerpt, just a sh like a, a short excerpt from Beelzebub's Tales, um, just courtesy of the Gaiden, Gaiden Index that very handily puts, them, puts all the references together. So just to start the conversation, I'll read two short sentences, two, well, short. <laughs> They've been ellipsed, so they're shorter than they are in the book, but uh, they might get across the, the concept. So Beelzebub says, I will explain the cosmic law Soliunensius. All the three-brained beings, on whatever planet they may arise, and whatever exterior coating they may receive, always await the manifestations of the action of this law with impatience and with joy. Because, thanks to it, the need for evolving in the sense of acquiring of the acquiring of objective reason by them increases in them by itself. The causes which bring forth this action flow from the periodic tension of the sun. That's the first one. So he's saying the origin of this, this, uh, this process, this phenomenon, has to do with the tension, the periodic tension of the sun. So it comes and it goes, and um, and it it results uh, in normal beings with the manifestations of um, impatience and joy. So the second one is let's see which one it is okay when there began to become predominant the evil inner god named self-calming then under the influence of the action of solionensius instead of the desire and striving for a speedier self-perfection a something began to arise such as they characterize by the words need of freedom which chiefly serves the cause of the arising there of grievous processes similar to bolshevism so i thought those two quotations were were very interesting of course well we might be able to get into to some of that first one but in the second one i'll i'll highlight a few things so under the influence of this cosmic law with its root in the periodic tension of the sun according to this beelzebub um mythology or science that Gurdjieff's presenting in this, this giant strange book. So instead of the desire and striving for a speedier self-perfection, so there's a contrast between the potential in a time like this of a speedier self-perfection, so an advanced and accelerated process of self-development and self-perfection. That's one option, but instead of that, we seem to, or something seems to arise in us, in humanity, um, and he says, such as they characterize by the words, need of freedom, which chiefly serves the cause of arising of grievous processes similar to Bolshevism. So if you look at, as we mentioned earlier, the, the situation in Russia before the revolution, well, what was the revolution about? What were all the, the revolutions in the, in the 20th century about and beforehand? Well, they're they're all in the name of freedom or liberation, liberation from something. And you mentioned earlier, Alan, these, these grand ideas about changing the world. Well, most of them, I'd say, I'd say most of them have what seems to be a, a, um, a noble calling to be free, to be free from the, the oppressions of that other, of those, of those other people, that group. Um, and it may, it may be, 
because of the color of their skin or the amount of money they have or what country they're from. Maybe they're a foreign occupier or whatever or whatever. Any, or any, any possible class division you can imagine, you can have a revolution about it because one group's going to be in charge and, and, and um, exploiting, exploiting the masses in, in one way or another. So this call for freedom, this call for liberation, then results in mass slaughter, mutual destruction, and a kind of madness. But again, that's, that is contrasted to the possibility of a time for speedier self-perfection. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on the opportunities that arise in a time like this for self-perfection. You mentioned something earlier that I think that I think is relevant in, in what you were saying about fear. When you have a situation, a fearful situation, there's, there's at least two big opportunities, two big possibilities you have in that situation. You can take the one where you, where you shut off, cower in fear, and just uh, let, your inst let your kind of lower instincts take over. Or you can take the, the path that you were um, advocating, which is to, to open, you know, to, to be receptive to, to a, greater, um, a greater understanding of reality. So I, w I wonder if you agree with that take on it, and if you have anything else to say about this, this as, an, as being an opportunity for speedier self-perfection. Yes, I, I, I agree uh, very much with you, and those were very apropos quotes, uh, because, of course, they, they relate back to what I was saying about uh, Zoroaster and what happened with him, because uh, the guy who helped destroy that, the first one, was involved with this, this idea of, of freedom and self-calming, just those things. And uh, th they are so uh, seductive uh, for people, like an opiate, uh, that uh, it's very, very difficult if you present that to somebody. It's a little bit like that movie, The Matrix. You know, the guy says, well, I know it's not real, but it tastes real, you know. <laughs> And I'd rather have this than, than you know, life. You know, I'd rather have really an artificial life rather than a real one, because a real one means that I have to consciously endure difficulties. And so in the Sulianensis, uh, with the tension coming out of the sun, we're talking about an actual force from a higher level that's descending into the earth or the earth plane. And this force then, if, if one is open to it, one is receiving a higher influence, literally. And, and that, of course, can help to motivate one and, and help to engage one in this work of transformation. And on the other hand, you, you have, uh, and these two sides are in each of us. It's not like it's in that person, you know, or in that person. These things are in me. And uh, so then uh, th there's a part of me that's going to say, well, yes, I want to be free. You know? But not in the sense of inner freedom, but I want to be free from the constraints of the situation, of the society that, that, that I'm born into. And certainly certain societies and situations are, are quite 
difficult, quite bad. And, and uh, the situation that was in Tsarist Russia for the vast majority of the people, which were called Serbs, was very hard, very hard life. Uh, and parts of Russia still has a hard life, but not, not anywhere compared to that. Uh, so you have this uh, perhaps legitimate desire to uh, have more economic freedom, have more ability to, to speak what you want to say. Uh, and uh, uh, to have fun, you know, whatever. Uh, to believe in what you want to believe, all those things uh, are legitimate. But then something happens with that legitimate interest, that in, in legitimate wish. Then I begin to say, well, those guys over there are the bad guys. And all we have to do is get rid of them and we're going to be free. And of course, that never happens. As soon as you get rid of them, somebody else replaces them, usually using the same words that, uh, that the uh, masses do, saying, I, yeah, we're going to make you free. We're going to share everything and so on and so forth, which is happening today. And, uh, and of course, all you get is another totalitarian group. And in a way, the sickness that is underlying that the fear, the hysteria, the lack of uh, rational thought, the sickness underlying it just gets worse every time. And I think that's part of why you're asking, is it just a cycle or is it worse now? I think it's worse now. And Gurdjieff puts it this way. Before, people were asleep and they're for you hear the great teachers like Buddha or Jesus saying, wake up, you're asleep. You're supposed to be here. That's, that's what it means to be human, you know, but you're sleeping. And he even told his disciples, right, when he was about to, to be crucified, he goes to his disciples and says, you were sleeping? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think it even surprised Jesus that they could do that. And these were disciples. These were not just ordinary people. These were his direct disciples. So imagine us, <laughs> you know, we sleep a lot. In any case, he says, wake up. And of course, uh, Peter really only wakes up when the cock crows three times, which by the way, is the symbol of awakening, the rooster crowing. And so Gurdjieff says that, yes, that's the way it was. But now we're not only asleep, we're in a trance. We're basically in a hypnotic trance. And so people are more asleep, more automatons than they were in history, which is difficult to believe. But if you look around and see what's happening, I think uh, by observation and by reading history, uh, you'll see that that seems to be true, that we're in a worse time than we were a few hundred years ago and certainly a few thousand years ago, that people are less rational, less uh, emotionally stable, uh, less connected with the instinct, the good part of instinct, 
what he calls the instinctive need for self-perfection. And so these things uh, are gradually, it seems like, atrophying. And on the other hand, we have this tremendous explosion of inventions and technology that we have less and less control of or idea of how to utilize, like uh, the problem with uh, uranium and radioactivity. So we're setting up all these mini radioactive sites because we want free energy. Well, it's not free energy. It's not green. has nothing to do with that. You know, you, you have a half-life of maybe 50,000 years. That means that, that all that where it put is going to be deadly for 50,000 or more years. Does that make any sense? And what if one of those barrels that they're hiding away in the ocean or underground, they begin to leak and they begin to enter the water system? What are you, how are you going to control that? You can't. So in many ways, we are, we are in, I think, a worse situation. I think that's really why Gershif came uh, and, and tried so, so, so much to help people uh, awaken and to the point of really uh, undergoing suffering that I hardly can imagine. You know, that was his cross. And... Uh, now we're at a state where his teachings have come to the second, third generation, and he said they will change. And uh, teachings always change. Buddhist teachings changed in one gen- generation, he said, uh, began to. And, and of course, Christianity changed a great deal, you know, and, and uh, you know, to the point where uh, it uh, was supposedly. Uh, supporting the the terrible inquisition that was in spain starting in much of it in spain long ago uh, and now we have uh, what 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 can we do what's our arc hmm? what's our arc hmm. that's the question and for the grief work it, it's trying to go deeper into his teachings and help others who want to awaken. So. So bringing that to the question of self-development and uh, using the ideas that uh, Gurdjieff presented and uh, the ideas that you've come to describe in your own work, Alan, uh, there was one phrase I really liked a lot which was um, coming to a workable set of tensions, which suggested that we wanted to be uh, just relaxed enough to not feel terribly uncomfortable physically, but just tense enough to remain awake, awake to ourselves, awake to others, awake to our environments, and so, um, because uh, insofar as uh, I do any work on myself at all, uh, sometimes there is the, the question of um, what am I doing right now? What is the best, how am I using my energy? What is the best use of my time and energy and focus? Am I, 
am I being uh, sleepy? Am I acting mechanically? Or is my uh, actions or, or thoughts more or less uh, in the direction of conscious uh, in the way that Gurdjieff would present conscious consciousness? Um, so I, I guess what I want to uh, ask you, Alan, is from the, the moment to moment when we're observing ourselves, um, how do we, what would you say is a good approach to finding the workable set of tensions uh, that we're bouncing in between of sometimes? Well, this is really the, the importance of duality. And you, you hear, of course, about people saying, you know, uh, non-duality. But, but the beginning of everything from unity uh, is duality. And, and without duality, without this tension, uh, we're not going to pull in what's called the third force, the holy spirit in, in the religious sense. And uh, one could say, uh, for us, uh, it would be the conscious force, that there's literally a, a conscious force uh, that can descend into us, and that could then be incorporated in us in the sense of developing a higher body. And that it requires a tension of forces. Without that duality, without the pull out, polarity uh, that we need, uh, affirming, denying, active, passive, then this re reconciling force can't come into us. So we need to produce exactly this, this kind of, what is, the, what is the tension that I need now? For example, in the simplest way, what's the tension I need to sit up straight? I often don't think about that, but, but to sit up straight and, and to be in line with the axis of attention and the axis of the spine, it needs something. Yes. And if you do Tai Chi, of course, you recognize that you're trying to reduce and reduce unnecessary tensions. So I'm going through a movement of some sort. Uh, and at the same time, I'm checking my body to see what's unnecessary. How much tension do I need to raise my hand like this or to put my hand like that? And how much is unnecessary? You know, you can feel in your forearm, for example, that you're tensing too much. And certainly when I began Tai Chi and when everybody begins Tai Chi, the teacher goes around and says, Sung you know, relax, <laughs> you know, and we don't even know how to relax. That's, that's the sort of funny thing. How, how do you relax? <laughs> because there's no relation between the mind and the body. Yeah, that relation is gone. And so you have to find it. You have to, you have to re-educate yourself. Ah, I can relax. Oh, wow. I can relax more and still keep the form I need. So. The required tension in each thing is something that we have to uh, work on. We have to, we have to try to observe uh, if I'm speaking to you, uh, am, am I too tense in my speech? You know, am I like this? Or am I able to let something from within flow out? Not just persona, not just mask but something inside, just, just allow it. 
And we do that, for example, in, in uh, what's called form and color in the work, where you work with different kinds of art and, and you try to allow yourself in painting or in writing or whatever you're doing, you try to allow yourself to come from the inside and not inhibit it, not stop it, but have something real connect with the outside world. And that does require a certain tension, a certain attention as well. Uh, and that attention that we're talking about now is the two arrows where we uh, try to be aware of who I am here and also what's going on outside me simultaneously. That's a kind of tension. But if I have worry about it, if I have anxiety about it, then I produce subjective tensions that I really don't need at all, but that I have unfortunately learned, you know, from, from being in, in society and being with people. I've learned these unnecessary tensions. And so it, it takes a while. I can say that even now, after 50 years, I can find uh, myself uh, having some unnecessary tensions. And, and so this is a very interesting uh, discovery process, self-discovery. And mm -hmm. then gradually, if I'm able, I learn how to move both physically and emotionally and psychologically and thought uh, with minimum amount of uh, use of energy, with only the energy that's necessary. And therefore I store the other energy to create something inside myself. Hmm. Well, I know in your first book, there's a, a great, interesting section, the Handbook on Energy. Um, and you talk about, in addition to Tai Chi, you do uh, Qigong. Is the, I don't know how much I want to get into that, but maybe this is a way, this might be a way of asking about your new book, because you've been working on a second book. Um, will, maybe, can you just tell us a bit about it? Will it, will it kind of continue the, some of the themes and, and writings in the first book? Um, um, do you have anything, anything to give us on that project? Uh, there'll be, uh, I wanted in the first book with the handbook of energy to sort of lay out the uh, map of uh, transformation of, of energies and uh, in, in a kind of uh, traditional way, but without all the traditional nomenclature. So trying to uh, simplify it as much as, uh, as possible, uh, it's still not simple. But uh, that was my attempt. And, and to what I found, of course, was that in the many early years of my study, myself and my friends who were studying uh, together, we had a kind of little group of people who I would say were sort of seekers of truth in our own uh, small way. And uh, we found that the Taoist alchemical teachings uh, very precisely uh, were reflected in Gurdjieff's uh, 
food diagram and table of hydrogens and things, that there was a really close correlation between these two. Almost, uh, for us, it was it was uh, quite a surprise to see how how well they correlated. And so we, I, I kept them separate for years and years and years because I thought, you know, I'm, I just don't feel in my being that I'm ready to see these. Uh, as uh, as how they could could be brought together, but after many many years, I thought yes yes, yeah, I'm quite sure of this now, and so uh, this uh, transformation of energy uh, in in this sense of a kind of uh, alchemical process is very very important. I think to know. And at the same time, there are other psychological processes that Gurdjieff talks about, uh, including uh, the idea of uh, developing presence and an atmosphere around the body uh, that also can help or can make this higher body. And, and of course, that's much simpler. But am I missing anything? by this psychological process, this rather simplified psychological process. And you see uh, Michel de Salzman, Gajiv's son, speaks about gold particles, that within the whole uh, materiality that I'm made up of, there's a small amount of gold. And of course, this is, this is gold in the sense of a, of a kind of energy, silver, being connected with the astral body and gold with the solar or mental body. And he says, I can collect this energy. I can recognize it and begin to collect it. And when I get enough of it, then it can crystallize out this higher body or higher bodies. So here's another approach to the same question. Very, very simple approach compared to what I've written in the book. Um, is it sufficient? Of course, that's been one of my questions for a long time. Is it sufficient? If it was sufficient, why have the food diagram in, in, in the book? Why have to talk about the uh, higher energies, what we call C12, Sol12, Me12, that need to be collected, the three treasures, you might even call them in the Taoist, in this lower abdomen, in the lower abdomen where the Dantian is, you know, the the number of correspondences is quite great uh, between the two. So I'll be writing about that, about some of these other uh, approaches uh, to the uh, creation of a higher body. Uh, I'm going to be uh, dealing with these uh, problem uh, of Sulinensius, which we've been talking about, of how to deal with what, what a what would a sly man approach to Sulianensius is recognizing that even as a sly man, one is not normal. One is not, as you were talking about, normal beings would just naturally receive like you receive sunlight. You know, if you're cold, uh, you've been in a sleeping bag, for example, in the morning, and it's wet and cold, and you the sun comes up, you just receive it. 
<laughs> it doesn't take anything special. A normal person receives this warmth, this light, this heat, just like all the animals, the birds, they're all starting to sing. Everything's waking up. It's just natural. But something happened to us as human beings a long, long ago. And we began to uh, forget this, this direct relationship with nature and with higher influences. And so we have to find our way back. And so the sly man is finding his way back through all the psychological problems and, and so on that we have. And uh, so I want to talk about that as well in, in the book. And maybe a little bit about other things like the toast of the idiots and things that have been, I think, too long neglected uh, in the traditional uh, work, but I think are very, very important. So that's part of what will be in there. And right now, as I say, we're at the point of gathering just notes uh, together, uh, Usi and, and me, and uh, and we're going to uh, work on start working on editing. And I, I I just wanted to mention, just as an aside, how interesting the insect world is, because when when you talk about tyranny uh if you look at ants termites bees all the worker bees <laughs> all the worker ants all the worker termites and so on and so forth all the social insect world is underneath a matriarch <laughs> it's, it's kind of fascinating the queen bee, the queen termite, etc., and uh, they all serve her. Of course, she serves the function of, of procreation of, uh, and everything. But it's rather interesting this kind of lunar world, what Gushif would call the world ninety-six, uh, under more and more laws, uh, and uh, and the movement out of the insect world into a world which is more balanced, the animal world in the sense then you have these uh, real dynamic between male and female. For example, the matriarch elephant who may lead the whole herd across hundreds of miles in order to find water or something else. And uh, you also have the male elephant who is dominant in another way. So you have this balance of dominance between these two, uh, which I think, of course, is a much better plan. And, and the Iroquois Indians, who we used uh, their, their ideas to some extent for our constitution, uh, besides the Masons' ideas, and uh, had a whole uh, part like we lost your video, Alan. Oh, there we go. Yeah, just the battery's low. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> the battery got low, and so um, they they had this this kind of congress similar to what we had, but one part of it which we were missing was a whole woman's congress. You know, I think it was fascinating. So that the the women also, among other things, had the right to veto going to war because it was their sons going to war. And so they had the right in the Iroquois uh, 
to veto that if they felt it was unfounded, if there was no good reason for it. So there was this this much better balance, I think. And uh, so to avoid tyranny, that's one of the things we need. We need this balance between yin and yang. Uh, And I think that would reduce tyranny, which, you know, the etymology of that word not only includes a a cruel person, uh, but also a person that doesn't have the legitimate right to rule. So that's the combination of, of, of ideas, I think, uh, involved with this idea of tyranny you brought up. And uh, if only we had uh, Zoroaster's uh, uh, people and, and politicians uh, who were willing to give up their position because they recognize they're incompetent, you know, or they simply don't know as much as, as somebody else who would do a much better job. But except for George Washington, you know, who in the beginning actually said, no, I won't be president. And then they asked him, of course, that may have been a a sly man's approach to becoming president. But, you know, then they asked him, please, you know, become president. But other than that, you don't see that happening. (coughs) No, that seems to be one of the one of the one of the flaws in a lot of a lot of political systems but western s- systems in particular is is how to select how to actually select ideal or just even not ideal just decent leaders you know better than average um it seems it's one of those problems that we just haven't quite figured out yet and uh, I, I, it, you were speaking about that reminded me of something from Salito Solano and Catherine Hume's notes on the, their time with Gurdjieff, and it comes up several times in the transcript or in their in their transcripts in their in their writings. Gurdjieff talking about the the king at the time. Now I don't, I'm not a big British historian buff, but um, he just railed on the king. I think it was the. Oh, I looked it up at one point, but my history isn't as good. But he's he he said. He criticized the the new king um, because he wasn't. He basically wasn't upholding the the expectations of what a real king should be, and even even a king in the in the British uh, in the well in the British system at the time, there were there were qualities that a king should um, manifest, and that should manifest in their in their actions and their self presentation, and even on a, just a symbolic level, in addition to other ones. And Gurdjieff was just railing against the king. Part of this could have been because I think it was Miss Gordon, who was part of the group, who was, who was a uh, British and pa- uh, patriotic British woman. So it might have been just a, partially a, a way of um, teasing her or pushing her buttons. But the, it seemed that there was more to it than that, that, um, that there are these almost archetypal positions in a society like like in the insect world like the queen bee there are situations where and, and social structures where there will be and there is a leader naturally that 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 situation will naturally arise when you're when you're doing a project when you're working you know on a bridge or something someone will migrate to that 
to that leader posi leadership position, or they'll be, or they'll be placed there. But there are expectations. There are, or I shouldn't say expectations. There are, there are qualities that should come with that position, and that should merit the person in that position to hold that position. <laughs> and that seems to be one of the things that that we've forgotten, or that that we haven't that we haven't seen the need to think about and to develop. And uh, that leads that's, to all sorts of problems. And that's a matter of being. Mm -hmm. Not yeah. just intellect. Intellect is one thing, but being is, is another. And without that, then they can't lead. There's no legitimate leader. And uh, of course, then people uh, are led into, into any kind of uh, chaotic situation, rebellion, and so on. He said that uh, that the Tsar Nicholas was a good man. Apparently, he met him, uh, but he was a weak man, and so that's uh, that's not good for a leader. And of course, I think one of the main reasons why the revolution actually occurred uh, was because he's weak and uh, and unable then to uh, to show people. Uh, so. Mm -hmm. tyranny is a good question yeah I, I don't know if we want to end on a lighter note but i would just say alan that we've had some direct experience with uh the totalitarian societies of bees and ants this last <laughs> summer we decided i i'm pretty sure that they were communists they were extremely aggressive and there was no reasoning with them there was no negotiations, it was really, uh, and they were attacking, basically. So to, to see this imbalance in the insect world, even though bees and, and ants do provide some functions in different ways, the, the ones that we experienced directly here were, uh, they were just uh, completely um, unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's the lighter like note to this whole thing. European hornets. Yes. Oh, that's not a bee. <laughs> yeah, no. 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 No, but uh, not exactly. I, I really think that the human uh, psychological uh, dysfunction is affecting the animal and insect world as well as uh, many other things. I think that mm. we are we are radiating uh, uh, mm. things that uh, that disorient animals, whales, every, everything on earth, really, I think. Uh, so, yes, that, you have to be very careful uh, when you stir up a hornet's nest, that's for sure. That's Try not to do that. Yeah. Well, were there any other topics that we wanted to, to get to, or is that a good place to wrap it up? I think so. Um, I, I just wonder if there's, uh, you want to, um, well, maybe Just you can have the, the last word and yeah. yeah, if there's anything you wanted to share in particular, any, any thoughts on anything else we've discussed today, Alan, that would be appropriate to have the last word on that would be wonderful. Well, I wanted to thank you guys for having me on. It was very, very good of you to, uh, bring me back after a year and, uh, we are trying to 
do something which, uh, from my point of view, is is almost impossible. That is to reignite this uh, Gurdjieff work towards the connection with the fourth way, and uh, in time, perhaps even connect to uh, somebody connected with the Sermon Brotherhood or other uh, deep esoteric uh, groups of people in the world. Uh, not just, you might say, telepathically, but physically uh, to do that. And uh, we need people's help if anybody is actually interested in the Gurdjieff work and the fourth way and in reviving it. Uh, please contact us uh, at istfw.com uh, and uh, and tell us uh, what uh, what your interest is. Because really, the world is is in a, a very difficult situation, and uh, I think Rajiv came to help to uh, bring us through this situation. And whether it's like the Hopi Indians, you know, where they say, "Well, when the world was uh, the poles were turning around and everything, uh, the ant people came and put us in these little like bamboo things and." And they were the, they were like the ark, and uh, so and then a remnant at least survived and uh, continued. And uh, so I hope one way or the other uh, we are able either to mitigate uh, these uh, coming uh, problems that uh, seem to be growing, or we're able to at least have a group of people who survive and build a better world. So. Thank you so much, and uh, hope to see you again someday. Thank right. you. Thank you, Alan. Good luck with everything. Thank you.